this is Coffee House Questions with Ryan Pauly, and we are back with part two, talking about uh, the new book by J. Warner Wallace, Forensic Faith, A Homicide Detective Makes the Case for a re- More Reasonable Evidential Christian Faith. So thanks for joining me for another 30 minutes, uh, Jim. Yeah, I'm glad to do it. Glad to do it. Awesome. Well, hey, if you are listening and you missed uh, part one, I just want to encourage you to go back. We really kind of set the foundation for kind of what makes Christianity unique uh, how it makes uh, public claims that can be tested versus private claims, how it's a, based on a foundation of evidence, and then kind of started looking at how do we uh, explore that evidence and, and kind of the role of Christians in making a case uh, for Christianity. And so that's kind of what I want to jump back into as we uh, kind of continue looking at this book and, and talking about the role of Christians uh, in their Christian faith. And, and one thing, Jim, that you mentioned um, in the beginning of your book uh, and, and we kind of discussed it a little bit in part one, uh, where I think you mentioned uh, being an accidental Christian, uh, but you also kind of talk about this idea of being a California Christian. Uh, what does that mean to be a California Christian? Right. You know, um, I mean, think about that. Uh, if you asked me, um, well, are you a Californian? I, I would say, of course. Yeah, I, I can prove it to you. I can put my driver's license out and, and show you on my driver's license that it says I live here in California. But if you were to really test that to see if that was true by maybe quizzing me and asking me, well, what year was California founded or how many counties are in California or, you know, how what you know, what's the, how do you pass a bill in California? What's the state tree? Or I, I, I couldn't even answer any of those simple, basic questions from population to square miles to crops or any of that. I mean, honestly, I don't know much about California, even though I've been here my entire life. My dad raised me here. You know, my, my parents were married here. But it doesn't it doesn't really I, I can't answer those, those big questions. And so in the end, I'm really an accidental uh, California. I mean, I just happen to have been born here. And that's why I've got it on my driver's license. But a lot of us, sadly, um, are kind of. Christians the way I'm a Californian, you know, we happen to have been born into the system or raised that way or we've, you know, married somebody who was a Christian and that's what's kind of guided us toward Christianity. But but we don't really know how to answer any of the fundamental questions that would demonstrate that we know anything about the system. If you think I'm exaggerating that, Barna just recently, what, about a week and a half ago, two weeks ago, released another one of their updated surveys related to what people think Christianity even teaches about any number of topics within the Christian family and have discovered that the, the vast majority of us are either heretical or just don't have any idea um, what Christianity teaches on any variety of. We don't hold a Christian worldview. Of course, that's a difficult thing to measure, right? Because what, what kinds of questions is Barnett even asking to ascertain that that's true? But I think you know this just from uh, intuitively, uh, as as you've talked to your friends, maybe who are Christians, is that, you know, we get pressed into certain uh, for certain answers, and we really don't find ourselves well equipped to answer them. Uh, even as a, uh, a, a non-believer, for the years I was not a believer as a police officer, the, the few officers that I knew who were believers um, they were evidential about everything it seemed like except for their Christian beliefs. I mean, that was the one area that they would jump off and they would talk to, start talking about experience and about how God had changed their lives. I mean, there's lots of things that can change your life. It doesn't even make make it necessarily true. I mean, you could your life could be changed by Oprah Winfrey. It doesn't mean I'm going to consider Oprah to be God. So, I mean, the fact that your life was changed to me as a non-believer really did. I knew people who would make the same kinds of claims as Mormons. Yeah. I just didn't think that that really necessarily made made it true. And so I was very much uh, viewed these folks as accidental Christians. This, But look, uh, uh, to be honest, and I thought about this just recently, I, I have no Christians in my family. 
um, and as I was looking back at my own lineage, you know, the Wallaces, uh, I'm looking to, and I'm asking the question, was there anyone in uh, my family who I could, I know or would suspect were believers? And, and, you know, the closest I think I come is my grandfather, uh, Warner. But I, I think sometimes, if, I mean, I, I only talked about it with him. You know, he was, he was much older than me, so I was not a Christian until I was 35. So clearly, I didn't get the kind of conversations I'd like to have with him on this issue. But, but I think if, if he was, if he would have called himself a Christian, he probably would have called himself a Christian, like the same way you would have like a national identity. You know, I'm, I'm an American, but, but Christianity is different than that, right? I mean, it's not just a matter of you know, that there are no second generation, you know, Christians by birth. Uh, this is a, a really about us making a decision. This is true, and why we decide it's true, I think, is is critical. Now, look, don't get me wrong. You can be in the right place accidentally, and I'm not suggesting for a second that people who can't make a case to defend their Christian views haven't trusted God, haven't trusted Jesus for their salvation. I, I'm sure they have. These are brothers and sisters in Christ who we will be in eternity with forever. But I can tell you this. Um, you are far less likely to stand in the line of fire if you don't think that that bulletproof vest can stop bullets. If you think that bulletproof vest can stop bullets, you're likely to stand up and take a risk to do the right thing because you are confident, evidentially, that that vest can do its job. I, I always use that analogy because what I've seen is that students who are convinced on the grounds of evidence that this is true are so courageous in the college setting. The number one, they're bulletproof to begin with. They're not going to be shaken or shattered by some professor, and they're far more likely to stand up and say, well, you know, have you thought about this? You know, why do you think that's true? And they, they'll even take the first steps to do the kind of simple Columbo questions that Greg Kokel always talks about, right, uh, in tactics. But they'll do that because they have the, the evidential confidence. It just There's a relationship between your evidential certainty and your bold proclamation of the gospel. There just is. And, 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 and so I think it was really important for us. If we don't think we, we if, if you could argue, well, Jim, it's not going to matter if, if they're saved or not, if they know how to defend it. You're probably right. It's not going to, these are still, if you've trusted Christ for your salvation, you're in. I get that. But if you want to have impact and influence in the culture, or at least be able to withstand the, the, the onslaught of bad ideas, or be even more bold in your proclamation of the gospel, trust me, this evidential approach will result in those kinds of things. Yeah, and I've even seen that play out firsthand uh, last summer. And I know you've taken students up to Berkeley as well as uh, Salt Lake City. Uh, but last summer, I went on the Salt Lake City trip with uh, Brett Kunkel from Stand to Reason. And, and uh, you know, watched that group of students that he trained, you know, learn kind of the evidential approach, learn how to have these conversations. And they showed up at Salt Lake City. And maybe maybe the first day or so, they're a little bit nervous. And, you know, they hadn't really tested, you know, so to speak, that bulletproof vest for themselves. They've, they've learned that it can stop bullets, but they didn't really put it into practice. Um, sure. But I saw that just as the week went on, how much their confidence grew as they got into conversations with Mormons and saw, wow, this this actually works. This this can stop bullets. This does make sense. Um, and I can have these conversations and just saw that confidence grow uh, an extreme amount just in those few days that we were in Salt Lake City. And so I think those isn't trips that amazing? are isn't huge. That encouraging? It's, it's encouraging. Yeah. And I think that I often wish um, that people would um, – would kind of um, have that experience, would get a chance to see that because I, I just feel like, wow, if they could see, if people could see what result, how, how it results in, in the transformation of students, 
that they would be really impressed. Yeah. Um, they, I think they would be uh, so overwhelmingly impressed that they would uh, go, wow, I want that for myself. Yeah. And maybe it's because we have seen it with students where we have seen what difference it makes. We see, we know our students, you know, we almost always start off that training, that eight weeks of training. We almost always start off with role playing or we'll just invite in a local bishop to, to kind of do a Q and a with our students. And mm-hmm. they are more than willing to do it. As a matter of fact, they, a lot of the bishops are older guys that have had themselves also been on the mission field as, you know, 19 year olds. So they've already been door to door for two years. They've already heard every objection that Christians make and, and they're prepared to kind of do their best to answer these objections. And, and sure enough, they will come, they will come to you and be happy to, um, to, to, to sit in and do a session with your, your group. And sure enough, um, after that first session, you realize those kids are way, way under-equipped. They're not ready, and the kids realize it. The students realize it, too, because that bishop was successful in defeating every potential objection they had. And and so that initial test prepared them and made them eager. Now, at the end of the trip, when you come back and you see how well they did on the streets – of, of you know Salt Lake City or in Provo or on the campus of BYU wherever we end up going Manti is a big festival we used to go to every June um, you know you would you'd go wow is this the same group I mean are these the same kids and of course they are and you think wow if the entire church could somehow experience that kind of transformation where would we be as a church hmm. good chance we would be um, uh, in a much better place, a much better equipped. Yeah, I agree. So it's important. Yeah, well, I just want to kind of let the listeners know uh, that uh, kind of what we were just talking about right there uh, is is the first podcast that I did with you on, uh, it says, I think it's titled, uh, Stop uh, Teaching Students and Start Training Them. And you can find that at coffeehousequestions.com. Um, and so we've recorded a podcast discussing those points. And that's also uh, chapter two of your book in Forensic Faith. And so just encouraging those people to go back, listen to that podcast, as well as uh, get the forensic faith and read chapter two and kind of understand the importance of testing yourself and testing others and then raising the bar and really getting people involved uh, so that they can grow in their confidence and their ability and their interest on how to deal with these uh, sort of questions. Um, Yeah, it's important. Definitely. um, Another thing that you kind of just mentioned right there that it was actually another question that I got when I was speaking with uh, Rasha Christie is, is kind of it seems unreasonable to expect um, all Christians to become you know theologians and understand all Christian doctrine and and understand all the world religions and the scientific and philosophical and you know historical and archaeological evidence you know for for Christianity and reliability and textual you know manuscripts and criticism and all that kind of stuff. Um, so what would your kind of advice be when a Christian says, okay, you know, I, I am kind of that, you know, California Christian. I, I am kind of just born into it. I don't know this stuff, but there's so much to learn. You know, where do I even start? What do I even do? Um, how do I move forward in this process of, uh, do I really need to know this information? You know, I, I, I have salvation. I love God. I love Jesus. You know, I don't need to know all these evidences. Well, I hope that every one of us has had some um some kind of run in or some bit of a challenge with a family member or one of your own kids or your dad or mom or somebody who you care about who's not a Christian that has caused you to think, well, I didn't have a good answer for that person. Now, it might be that you really don't understand the value of making the case because you've never done anything that has caused you to have to make the case. Now, let's be honest about that. That's true for a lot of us that we don't understand the value in this because we've never really 
we have not we have not been engaging our friends and family members with the gospel anyway. So we, we don't get kind of the kinds of pushback. For those of us who do go out there, uh, you know, when you go on one of these missions trips to Salt Lake City or to Berkeley, you're going to engage, you know, 15 people in the next two days that are going to think you're crazy for believing what you believe and are going to really ask you to defend it. And you're going to be in a position where you're going to have to learn how to defend it. And so that's that makes the, the need really apparent. Right. But for a lot of us, we have been within our, our safe kind of Christian communities or we just don't say much about what we believe when we're out publicly. So we've never run into anybody who's offered offered an objection. And if that's the case, then I would just the, the, the bigger issue, the bigger problem is going to be is that we're, I really want to encourage people to, to make the case to to, to to start. I mean, to start sharing what they believe, because then you'll see the need for this. You'll see it pretty quickly because you'll see that people are going to push back and not 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 accept what you're saying. And you're not going to have to answer that question. Like you, you just offered a couple of these uh, when you were t- teaching at the Rosho Christie. You, uh, in the last podcast, we talked about how somebody said to you, well, look, everyone makes claims about God. Why would I think that? Why would you pick your one set of claims over some other set of claims? I'm in a conversation right now with a family member on Facebook uh, through Messenger, and he, he's got a number of, of, of serious questions about the nature of God. He's like, he thinks that everyone, if there is a God, everyone goes to heaven. God forgives everyone. Now, okay, I get that. He's very much a universalist in that sense. So now, what am I? What, what is my next step with him? If I'm going to make a case that no, it's faith in Christ that saves you. I have to be able to articulate the gospel at least. And as I do that, I found that he offered three or four more objections. Why wouldn't a loving God, why would a loving God be so narrowly focused in this way? And he, of course, cites many of people he knows who he thinks are great people. And why don't, why don't they go to heaven as well? And they, just because they don't know Jesus, he would send them to hell. You, you hear the objections. You're starting to hear the objections that all of us hear if we have started to engage our friends and family members with the gospel. And that's what we do as case makers. And like, you have to understand the gospel in order to communicate. And the power is in the gospel. But this evidential approach will remove the boundaries and the barriers, rather, that people have built between themselves and the gospel so they can hear the gospel clearly. And that's what we're trying to do here. So the first thing I would say for those of you who have not really taken a step in this direction is, number one, think back to the last time you shared the gospel and somebody pushed back with you. Well, I don't have a situation like that, Jim. Well, then you haven't been sharing the gospel enough. But if you were sharing the gospel enough, you would have memories of times when people challenged you. And that's what I would use as my starting point. I wouldn't just take this academic approach and say, well, I've got to start with the foundation of uh, epistemology before I can understand what. No, I wouldn't take that approach. I would simply say, in my own family, what's the last question I couldn't answer? I just want to start there. And if in the end all I can do is answer that one question, that would be a start. And by the way, all of our students who go to Salt Lake City, that's what they do. They go out that first night and they get beat up by somebody on the street, not physically, but you know, intellectually as far as they understand their, their scripture better than we understand ours sometimes. And so we'll go back and forth in the dialogue and they'll feel like, well, I didn't make any progress at all. And they'll come back and they want to study all night on the single issue that they couldn't resolve in the street with that first contact. I don't even have the heart to tell them that to be honest with you, you're probably never going to encounter that issue again. Tomorrow is going to be a different issue. You need, but what's great about this is the students don't know that, and they are becoming a master of that one issue. Mm-hmm. That's what I would suggest to all of you who are listening. There's some issue that you've raised with a family member 
master one issue. Then the next time there'll be a different issue. You'll master a second issue. And I don't don't have to start this abstractly, academically. Instead, be very personal about it and recall your own uh, interactions with your friends and family and just stay there and, and learn how to answer those tests that you feel like you've already failed. And that's a good place to begin. I can tell you, when I first started, the only argument for God's existence that I was really interested in was the moral argument. Because I was working in law. I mean, I was I was enforcing laws in our state as a police officer and as a detective. And I always was kind of curious as to, am I just enforcing the laws that our culture embraces? And if I was in a different culture, I'd be enforcing different laws. Or are there any objective, transcendent moral laws? Is that kind of the foundation for everything here? And so I became interested in that argument for God's existence simply because I was working in this profession. And that's where I started. Now, in the end, don't get me wrong, you're going you're to master all this other stuff because your interests blossom from there, but you can't do it. You, you, how do you, you know, like the, the expression I used in the book is an old uh, expression that's been used for years. You know, how do you eat an elephant? You eat them one bite at a time. And so you, you take this thing one bite at a time. But if you don't start, and we, you and I have talked about this, you've been doing this now for two years on your uh, blog and on your uh, podcast. I already commend you, Ryan, because most people go about two months. And then they run out of steam. And what makes us good Christian case makers is not, you know, our degree, uh, our, our 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 ability to articulate. That's all helpful. But what makes us effective is persistence. It's simply staying at it. It's being interested to go for years and years rather than for minutes. And it's like this is a marathon, and you're going to run it the rest of your life. But you haven't taken the first step yet. You're not going to get very far. So I just want to encourage people to take the first step toward case making. Um, and, and then you're never going to get there. You're never going to arrive. You're just going to be running the race along with everybody else. But the race we've been encouraged to run is a race that, number one, can guard the truth, can defend, can discern, can, can test the spirits, can make the, give you the reason for the hope you have in Christ that does all of these things, not just once, but from now until you die. That's great. Absolutely. And so, well, we only have about 12 minutes left. And so there's a kind of uh, two points, one leading off that, that I want to kind of cover from uh, your book, Forensic Faith. Um, but this idea of, you know, I, a lot of times I, I hear people and they say, you know, I, I don't think that we should make a case or, you know, I don't think evidence is important. You know, we need to follow the example of Jesus. And he told Thomas, you know, it's better to believe blindly. Um, and have this kind of blind faith and believing without seeing. And so, you know, I don't think that we need to use evidence or how would you respond to something like that? And we do get it right. So I try to look at a couple of these in the book. But in general, I first wanted to start by giving you the rich, robust history of Jesus in the Gospels in which he repeatedly makes the case evidentially. He always did that. He would he would make a claim and then he would perform a miracle. And he would say, if you don't believe what I just told you, at least believe on the evidence of these miracles. Read the Gospel of John. You'll see this over and over and over again. I cite all these passages in the book to show that he is, is absolutely committed to evidence. Not only that, when uh, John the Baptist, who should know Jesus better than about anybody, he's his cousin who baptized him, who leapt in the womb when their parents first met him. It's, 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 and if nothing else, at least from the point of the baptism, you would think that John would have enough evidence. Most of John's disciples became Jesus' disciples. But once John was locked up and was in uh, custody, uh, that's when it, it appears at least that either he or his disciples had doubts. 
and came to Jesus. It appears that actually, I think some people will say it's just the disciples, but I think it's John himself from the scripture, the plainest reading of scripture. And, and he comes to Jesus and he says, hey, um, the disciples come to Jesus and they say, John's in custody and he wants to know, are you the one? Really? After all this, he wants to know, is Jesus who he said he was? Now, at that moment, if you just stop the film, I think we've got a great opportunity for, for Jesus to demonstrate what approach he is going to take. Is, is, is Jesus going to take the approach um, that he should be praying about it? Um, he should trust what, what, you know, trust me. Um, he should ask God because God will give him the wisdom that he needs on this. That's a very Mormon approach, by the way, both of those. That's not what he does. Instead, what he does is he says, okay, hold on a minute. And he works three miracles in front of John's disciples. And then he says, go back and tell John what you just saw. That's a very evidential approach because he's not going to – doesn't say anymore. He doesn't make any additional claims. He doesn't re refer John to the Old Testament or to Scripture. Instead, he performed three more miracles and sent them back. Now, he could have taken all those other approaches, but he didn't. He took the most evidential approach you could possibly take in that setting. But then you get to that passage in Thomas, right? So Thomas comes in, and he uh, doesn't see um, – uh, doesn't doesn't he that doesn't see he wants to see Jesus before he'll believe and then when he finally does see Jesus Jesus says hey blessed are those who have not seen yet still believe and people will take that and say well there you go the but but if, if you're not you get, don't read the Bible verse by itself you have to read the entire context of the passage if that's the case if the intent here is that Jesus is saying that people who have no evidence for this are are actually more blessed or or at least as blessed, the very next line of scripture would make no sense because it says right after that that Jesus then demonstrated many other miracles and did other acts in front of the disciples. Why, why would he do that? Why is he why is he demonstrating that this is true? If if those who don't have not seen are actually more blessed, then what you're done. Just just let them just they're really gonna believe or they're not gonna believe. Well, you see the answer to this really in the prayer that John, that Jesus prays in the Gospel of John, where he says that, that, that he is praying for a group, us, who will come to believe in Jesus on the basis of the eyewitness testimony of the disciples. He prays for the disciples first, and then he prays for those, the rest of us, who will come to know Jesus on the basis of the eyewitness accounts of the disciples. So those folks are not going to see Jesus, those who are trusting in the eyewitness accounts. They're going to be blessed. Why? Because they're trusting the direct evidence of the eyewitness accounts. And that's why he spends so much time with the eyewitnesses, giving them lots to recall when they go to make the case in the book of Acts. And, of course, when they get into the book of Acts, that's exactly how they make the case. This is an entirely evidential worldview that is grounded in a public event called the resurrection for, for which God has given us more than enough good evidence, direct eyewitness testimony to believe that it's true. And so, again, we are we are going to have to believe something we can't see something we did not see with our own eyes, but that we know about on the basis of direct evidence. And direct evidence, by the way, is only one form of evidence. It's eyewitness testimony. Mm -hmm. So every gospel, 
if we believe it contains the statements and observations of witnesses, even if they came through a scribe or they came through a secondary like Luke, who says he's talking to the eyewitnesses, if we believe that those documents contain the eyewitness observations of those who actually knew Jesus, you are trusting something on the basis of direct evidence, the eyewitness accounts that we have collected in the Gospels. And so, again, you really can't avoid taking an evidential approach. If you, if you said, hey, I just trust what the Bible says. The Bible said it. But that's good enough for me. Okay, well, then what are, you, what are you trusting in? You're trusting in direct evidence, the accounts that have been recorded, allegedly, of what people actually saw about Jesus. You're stuck with an evidential approach. Even if you want to presuppose the truth of Scripture, you're presupposing the truth of the direct accounts, the direct evidence accounts. That's a good point. And that's what kind of makes it what you describe in your book, a forensic faith, a faith that is based uh, in the evidence as opposed to, a, you know, a blind faith in believing that uh, when you don't have any evidence or even an unreasonable faith, believing in spite of evidence to the contrary, uh, which that's is right. kind of what we talked about with uh, before. Now, well, we only have about six minutes left, and so I want to make sure you have time to kind of explain this concept. And if we have time at the end, then I'll throw something else in there. Um, but one thing that I really like uh, that you put in the end of your book is a kind of a a question that I get often is you know like how do we how do we let's say I want to have this evidential faith let's say I want to look at the evidence for God's existence and all these things and then I want to go out and share it with people but the people are just unwilling to listen you know I I met with that atheist that just won't listen to anything that I say you know how do we go about learning and choosing who are the right people that we need to pick to to share this information with or do we just keep pounding the same person over and over and over again how, how do we go about this in a, in a right way yeah i think that you know when we look at um uh, books that have been written that really uh, are written in an effort to help us communicate the gospel winsomely there's a ton of those right they're out they're out there they're all good uh even in a tactical approach like greg's book called tactics which is a great book by the way everyone should own um so so th these are great books that uh, give us a strategy some some um some approach we might adopt and i knew when i when i was writing this section of the book that i could do that too but to be honest there's a lot of good stuff out there i wanted to go foundationally because i've recognized working criminal trials that you can spend all you can be as winsome as possible if you don't do one thing first nothing's going to go your way i don't care how much evidence you have how good the evidence is or how winsomely you present it it all comes down to sadly we win our cases not at opening statement, and don't get me wrong, we spent a lot of time in opening – our opening statements are sometimes four hours long because we know if we overwhelm the jury early and make the case effectively early, all we have to do is keep our promises for the next six or seven weeks while we're going through the trial. So we make very robust opening statements, but that's not where we win, and we don't win it in closing argument, and we don't win it in rebuttal. We win or lose in jury selection. As sad as that is, if you pick people who are so close-minded, they just hate prosecutors or they hate defense attorneys, they're not going to be fair to one side or the other. And so defense attorneys want to get those people on one end of the spectrum, those who hate defense attorneys and love prosecutors. They want to keep them off the jury, and we want to keep those people off the jury who hate prosecutors who had a bad experience with the police, and they just assume everyone's been falsely accused. We got to keep those people out. We need the, the the open middle people who might be inclined in one direction or the other, but will tell you that they're willing to put aside their even small biases in one direction or the other in order to do the right thing. So we're looking for people in the middle, not the far edges, who are either totally for us or totally against us. We're looking for people who would say, "Well, I'm maybe inclined one way or the other, but I'm I'm open." 
and I'm going to do the right thing. You make the case. I'll, I'll judge it fairly. Well, I, don't you wish that every person we engaged with the gospel would be similarly open, the, kind of the reasonable middle? Sadly, that's not the case. We either have people who are already in the group, uh, and we do have some people in the open middle. Don't get me wrong. Those are fun to, fun to talk to. But we often meet people who are on the opposite extreme, who are just so against the message of Christianity because they – they have usually they, they hate the moral teaching of Christianity even more than the, the, the factual claims of Christianity. But the point is they're they're so against God and so against your message. They're not just atheists. They're anti-theists. And you've seen these folks when you go to open universities and you speak at open open universities, there's the atheist groups will show up and, and they will either. Uh, openly protest your, your your appearance there, or they will, um, you know, live tweet or live post on media uh, all kinds of profanity against you. They'll wait and ask the most antagonistic questions. It's clear that they aren't there for any other reason than to throw a rock at you. I get that. So in about sorry, I can kind of cut you off, but just about thirty seconds that we have left. Uh, what what would be your advice to a Christian that kind of meets that person? You know, right, there's so, a family so member just... on the street. Yeah, let me just throw it out to you. It, it, you. That's a group you cannot effectively use evidence with because they're not hearing you. That's a group you model Christ for. That's a group you pray for because I was in that group. I, my dad is still in that group. And and what we you never would have reached us. But somebody was praying for me, and and it was the effective prayer of believers that that God responded to, and God moved me from the far edge to the reasonable middle. I was still not for it, but I was at least willing to hear you. As you shared the message and I wondered why am I suddenly even willing to listen because God had done that work of moving me from one category to another so that now the evidential case I would even bother to assess it. We can't do that on our own. We can't talk you off that edge, but we can pray you off that edge. And then once you're off that edge, we can then share the evidence and you'll be fair about how you reason it because God has already removed the enmity that you had toward him. And only God does that. So I think in the end, our uh, desire to make the case is still valid and necessary, but we don't move people's hearts and draw people to God. God does that. We then make the case the way everyone did in the entire history of Christianity, the way the book of Acts explains it, and then God produces the harvest. That's a great way to end it. Wow, there's well, there's so much more that we just could not get into, so I just want to strongly just encourage you guys, go out and get Forensic Faith uh, by Jay Warner Wallace. You can also check out his other work that he's done, Cold Case Christianity, uh, God's Crime Scene. Find all of his blogs and his articles, his podcast, and everything he's doing at coldcasechristianity.com. And Jim, just thank you so much for coming on the show today and also just all the work that you do uh, within Christian apologetics and within the church. Uh, mm-hmm. It's making such a, a big difference. It's made a big difference in my life and, and I know a lot of other people. So thank you so much for that. Well, let me encourage you, Ryan. You're doing a great work. You are truly gifted. And so just everyone who's listening to this know that Ryan and I as lay people can do this. You can probably do it too. Thanks for having me on your show. Awesome. And for those of you listening, I just wanted you to take that challenge. Go out and start start sharing your faith, looking at the evidential case for Christianity, and start making a difference in your community and the people around you. And if you have any comments or questions, send those in at contact at coffeehousequestions.com, Facebook, Coffee House Questions, uh, by Twitter at RyanPauly3, or by text messages at 714-989-6927. I'd love to hear from you guys, and uh, thank you so much for listening to Coffee House Questions. This is Ryan Pauly. hesitate to follow your love will God.